Hey everybody, welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And welcome back to, as my daughter hates me to say, the pudding pod. She'll get over it. She'll get over it. Get over it. <laughs> so how's everyone doing today? Sick. I know, you're sick. So if I sound off or you hear me coughing, I'm sick. Everybody's a little bit under the weather, I think. I feel like straight shit, but it's all right. Yeah. Well, you look cute, so it's okay. To you, thank you. <laughs> Everybody else, I just look like shit. No, you don't. That's what we have a face for radio, so it's good that we have a. That's why it's a podcast. It's a podcast. Not a video blog. <laughs> I know. We're both just. Well, you've been home a couple of days from work, so because you, you haven't been feeling well. I look rough. And we've all just kind of been staying indoors and. It's funny because, I mean, we're just all bummed out around here, like the way we look, I meant. We, we're oh, not yeah, yeah, for sure. Bummed out, in, like upset, basketball shorts with sweatpants and hoodies and just. Yeah, just all day, every day. Every day. We go to the grocery store and that's about it. <laughs> we get looks, it's all right. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but um, before we get started with this very special episode, might I say. Absolutely. Um, We want to take the time to shout out another one of our friends as we always do true crime b and b podcast and uh before i kind of dive into them i'm gonna go ahead and let you listen to this little clip of what they're all about hi fans of evil pudding we love courtney and patrick and we're friends of the pod I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we, we are, are True Crime b and We do a podcast every week. We release on Fridays. And every week we'll bring to you two different true crime stories. First we'll bring you a disturbing story. And then one that will hopefully uplift your spirits a little bit. We'd love to have you listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, so join us every week on Friday. Find us anywhere you find your podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, I don't know anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and also you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime BNB. Did we even mention that we're mom and daughter? No. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you join our crime family. Bye. Bye. So that's True Crime BNB podcast, and they are an amazing mother and daughter duo who usually showcase two tales per episode. And um, one kind of brings you down, like ours always bring people down. Yeah, right. <laughs> but they have ours are never up. <laughs> but then they have another tale that kind of lifts you up, so you always leave there feeling good. Unless Bailey, the daughter, takes over, the- <laughs> she's like me. <laughs> we never, have, we she's, never end on an uplifting tale. I, I want to say you're wonder- wonderfully twisted, Bailey, just like me, and that's a compliment. <laughs> It is actually a compliment from her. <laughs> but seriously. No, it doesn't sound like it. That's a legit compliment from Courtney. Seriously, guys, we love Beth and Bailey so much. So uh, we ask that you guys go and check them out wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Are you about ready, Pep? I am ready. I'm excited for this one. I am too. I'm very excited. So like I said, guys, today's episode is a little different. I was lucky enough to read a book called Tracy's Story. And Tracy... Daily is a friend of the show, and he has written three wonderful books, one in particular being about the harrowing tale of his childhood. See, Tracy's mother was unfortunately tragically murdered by his father when Tracy was just a little guy. He was 10 years old at the time. Guys, I was blown away by his story, so much so that I had to share it with you guys. I've been communicating with him back and forth, and he gave me permission to get his story out there. So that is exactly 
what we are going to do today. It's awesome. And I hope that we can make him proud in doing so. That's the one thing I want to come out of this. Of course. I mean, it's one thing when we're always telling people stories because that's yeah. what we do. We tell stories. Right. Uh, they're all true. We all know the people were affected by them, but it's really different for us when it's, you know, someone do yeah. we actually know or are connected to the or show, a yeah. friend of the show that we've Absolutely. communicated with. So you definitely want to go do right by them. Right. That's I mean, our only hope. I'm still going to make my comments and do my color commentary as I always do. And he do. would expect nothing I less. Know <laughs> but uh, no, that's why we're really kind of we're really excited about this one because it again we get to tell a story like we always tell, but this time, you know, it hits home for us just because we kind of know the person. Yeah, we're closer it's to a friend it. of the show. It's, it's someone we communicate about. You've communicated directly about this story with. Absolutely. So, in fact. I'm going to let him, in his own words, tell most of his story. I find it's only fitting um, because he deserves that. He Absolutely. He deserves his voice Absolutely. to be heard. So I have a, a few goals today. One is, of course, to raise awareness for domestic abuse of all kinds. Uh, from researching Tracy's life, him, his mom, and his siblings went through an unimaginable amount of trauma in their lives. And the fact that he's brave enough as an adult to have such a clear understanding of his past and all the players in it, um, that's a testament for many survivors that, you know, they indeed are not alone. He's proof of that. Today, he's now a husband and a father and, of course, an author with three books under his belt. Yeah, that's, which is awesome. He shamelessly and honestly has put his story out there in the form of a book entitled Tracy's Story, which I cannot recommend enough. In fact, I'd like for you to read it so much that we will be doing a giveaway. Hey, that's yeah, a first giveaway. A first giveaway. So please stay tuned until the end of this podcast to hear how you can enter to have a copy of Tracy's story sent directly to you, no cost to you, our expense. Yeah, and it's, it's a hard copy. It's not a digital copy. Yeah. It's not it's an actual hard copy of the book that we ordered. Yes. Uh, I will mail it to you. Like, and we will send it out to you all, whoever the winner is. Like back in the day when people mailed stuff. Like a real book. A real book. Made of real paper. Right. Sent in the mail through a truck. <laughs> like what even is that? <laughs> do people do that anymore? Like what the heck is going on here? <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into Tracy's story. Tracy was born the 7th of September 1982 and at Macclesfield General Hospital in England in the UK. This is a UK story today. And he's literally almost exactly a year younger than me. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. We're crazy. Like about two weeks off and a year off. He's the firstborn to Bernadette, affectionately known as Bernie, which is adorable. His mother and uh, Wenzel, his father, a shop worker whose parents originated in Austria. I don't like that name just because I've read his story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bernadette's family came from Manchester and moved to Macclesfield, Cheshire. Tracy is the oldest of four and has two sisters and a brother. Macclesfield is known for its gorgeous canal and rich housing with a history of silk production. Sounds beautiful. The scenery is beautiful and the famous 108 Steps of Macclesfield was a regular spot where Tracy and his nan Pat used to visit. He reminisces often about singing songs at Christmas time with his nan and granddad as they kept lookout for the cobbler shop and its mechanical figure, a man who appeared to be hammering nails into a shoe. However, this isn't a story about beauty, he says, <laughs> or the quaint town and its many family-oriented properties. And unfortunately, if we're talking about it, it's definitely not about beauty because it's right. 
That's Absolutely. not what we share with the world. No, we don't, unfortunately. It's horrible, but it's not. Here I share with permission, of course, some extracts of Tracy's first book, aptly named Tracy's Story. It's available on Amazon in paperback and digital, or you can find it via his website, which I, of course, will link in our show notes and on our Instagram. His website is www.mrtracydaily.wordpress.com. So easy enough to remember, but I'll link it in the show notes below. So let's start with one of many excerpts that we have here from Tracy's book that I will be using. I feel like this sets us up perfectly for a sneak peek into Tracy's early life so we can all paint a picture. Tracy writes, My mother was stood next to an old table drinking a glass of water and looking out over the pond outside in the back garden. I can remember the water was more green than clear from previous trips out there amongst the trees. I must have been no older than six, and I knew nobody was out there. She looked relaxed. Her thin, tall frame silhouetted against the cool autumn morning showing through the glass doorway. My earliest memory, brown hair flowed down her opal-shaped face, bouncing the sun's rays into an arc through the kitchen and warming the dark wooden table which was brown like her eyes. Wenzel was my father's name. He bought me a tractor toy. It was red and had buttons on the back, which were black. There were four, which made the vehicle go forward, backwards, and lifted up or down the dipper. We all had those, right? Yep, yep. He'd also bought a robot that turned into a monster. I was terrified of it, and he loved to chase me with it. I recall this vividly. He'd place me on the sofa and the robot beneath the cushions and then soothe me by talking softly and leaning forwards. He would stroke my neck until I was calm, and then he'd slid his hand down the sofa and press the button to make the monster appear from within the robot. I'd freak out again and again. He loved this game so much, it got to the point that if he placed his hand out of sight, I was scared of what might appear. He lived to taunt people. He tried often to get my mother Bernie on his side. She wasn't amused. But this simply gave him another avenue to exert his authority. Shut up, woman. I'm only playing. Have a little fun in your life, for God's sake. He'd snap, throwing her a filthy look, which lingered several seconds longer than it should have. Although the appearance was of snapping, he was in control. He was always in control. And I like how he tells the story of the robot, right? Yeah. It's very foreshadowing. It seems small. But it's so foreshadowing. The first time I read through it, I was like, that's a random thing to tell. Mm -hmm. But it's such a foreshadowing event of how his father was. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It is. You can just see the dude lived to fucking torment people. Mm -hmm. Yep. Tracy has mentioned, sorry, I was drinking my iced coffee through a horrible paper straw. It's horrible. I like the metal straws better. But Tracy has mentioned here. (laughs) Courtney's hot take of the day. (laughs) And there, uh, here and there that his father was indeed a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that we are starting to see the beginnings of that, right? Well, I mean, we saw a little glimpse of it, right? The control. The, right. The terrorizing. The taunting. The taunting. The f- creating fear to be in power. And Tracy doesn't throw that term around loosely because by definition, a, psychop- a psychopath displays personality traits here such as a lack of emotional sensitivity and empathy, impulsiveness, superficial charm, as we see here in a second coming up, that that's very much the case with Wenzel, and insensitivity to punishing consequences, which we definitely see, right? Oh, yeah. 
So it absolutely shows growth and self-awareness on Tracy's part that he can look back on his childhood and pinpoint his father's shortcomings. You know, and that's, as a victim, that's super important to look back as a victim of abuse and say, this is what was wrong with so-and-so. And and to note, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people are victims of abuse out there. Like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? How could I have done better in that situation or something? A lot of times it's like that, which is sad, but he's able to sit there and say, oh, it wasn't me. Right. Maybe it's because he was young enough at the time. You know, he wasn't older. Because ultimately, what we don't understand, we fear, right? And you don't fear it once you understand it. And Tracy has a very clear understanding as an adult of who his father is. And it's very important to the healing process, I think. So Tracy went on to say, you see, Wenzel always had a way with people. Whether that was the people he worked with, who thought he was amazing, the friends he had who claimed he was the nicest person you could ever meet, or the ladies down the road that people didn't mention often, but that were always shrouded in gossip and rumor. They'd say he was such a gentleman, but they'd say it in such a way that you'd think there was more to the story. And that's because there was. Wenzel was very much a ladies' man. So he was a charmer. And we see with a lot of psychopaths, that's what, that's what they are. They're charmers. They almost live duality. It's almost two lives. Absolutely, right? if their not more. Life or their, you know, in, these, in abuser cases like these ones, it's their home life versus their public life. Right. Which is... Very similar to, you know, like you Ted Bundy or somebody like that. Their public life is super charming. Everyone loves them. They're great people. But then there's that other dark life that they live. Right, right. And when they get caught, oh, I just never could have believed, you know. I just never knew he was was the neighbor next door. He was the nicest guy ever. Yeah, we've seen it. Yeah, exactly. We've seen it more times than not, sadly. Then more importantly, Tracy would say of his mother, Bernadette or Bernie, as everyone called her. He said she had started to show signs of depression. Less talking and generally not wanting to go out of the house. It began shortly after Tracy was born, as she was always known as that happy-go-lucky girl before then. Her husband, Wenzel, had actually met her while she was babysitting. She'd taken a child down to the local park, and Wenzel knew right then and there he'd have to have a part of her bubbly personality. She was always laughing and dancing. So Tracy's grandparents lived next door to his mom and dad. That's how the street was set up. And for a time, Tracy moved to his grandparents' house while his nan cared for his mother because she was going through some depression. And and his uh, nan was caring for his mother to help her get better. This is my two cents, but I can imagine that as someone who has once suffered from postpartum depression, that she may have also been struggling with that alongside dealing with her husband, who was less than supportive, I think we can all agree, at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of factors going on here. Anyways, he says after the birth of her first child, everything changed. Tracy talks about a key memory he had, and he says here, I was in pain, my throat hurt, and it felt like I'd been on the sofa for weeks. I was, this is when he was little. I was aware Alan, his grandpa Alan, my granddad, a tiny Irish fellow with a deep southern accent, was reading his western book in his jeans and cotton shirt with his green woolen hat pulled down. He was lying on the floor, leaning against the sofa that I was laying on, his black hair peeking out slightly. When he noticed I was awake, he folded his book and made wrestling gestures along with the television to try to cheer me up. I smiled but had no energy to join in. My mind was willing out my body, just couldn't make the effort. It was Hulk Hogan versus Ultimate Warrior, my favorite, my favorite match. 
He rewound the tape each time so we could watch it over and over. I had tonsillitis pretty bad. Oh, I feel you, Tracy. I grew up with tonsillitis like twice and I twice le- a year. I legit think I had that same match recorded as well as the uh, Randy Savage Hulk Hogan match. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think I watched them like hundreds of times. <laughs> Just back to back to back. Nan had been spood feeding me, but I couldn't take anymore. I'd gone from crying when she tried to flat out refuse. I was on the waiting list um, to get to the hospital and could hear her getting upset when I didn't eat. So Nan had called my father around as I'd been on liquid diet for two days. She told him as I lay on the sofa, I don't know what to do. He won't eat and the hospital won't see him yet. She said, standing in the living room next to Wenzel. My father looked down at me in his suede jacket, blue jeans, and shiny chrome-looking spectacles and said, Fuck him. Tell him if he won't eat, his throat will close up. Wow. And just walked out. I started shaking in fear involuntarily. Imagine hearing that from your dad, and you're like, well, it's fact, because my dad said it, you know? Jesus. You don't know any better. You're going to believe what he's saying. I didn't know what was happening to me. I knew I couldn't eat and believed if I didn't, my throat would actually close up. I had no reason to doubt him. I lay shaking while Nan tried to soothe me. I could feel her anger towards Wenzel as she brushed my hair back. Just ignore him. He talks a load of rubbish, that man. I don't know what Bernie sees in him. I really don't. I'd like to say I relaxed under her touch. However, the truth is I was arching my back and gasping for breath to check that I could still breathe. The more I flapped about worrying my breathing would get, the worse I got. Yep. So obviously there's not an ounce of comfort coming from his father. He's not capable of it. And thank God for his grandparents in this moment. That's all I can say, you know? At oh, least, I mean, at least he had that for a moment. Yeah, yeah that's definitely not empathetic to anything. He's definitely, no. a, you know, another telltale sign of a yeah. psychopath. We see it building. There's no emotional connection. Building. There's, no emotional, there's no emotion there. It's just. And it's crazy because as a story, just like in all of our other stories, you know, even though it's different, it's not really that different, is it's it? Not. Because then you can see it, you can see it build and build and Always build builds. until it snaps. It and Always then, builds. Although occasionally some light got to shine through, Tracy said. He says, I don't remember my brother and younger sister being born because they didn't live with us. Each time there was another birth, I was just told that I had a new brother or sister and that I was to take care of them. I was told by Nan and Grandpa Allen, who would take me around to see the baby for an hour or two as Wenzel, Nan and Allen would play cards while Bernie played with the newborn or did puzzle books. The baby was called Jonathan, and Mom said he was special because he was born with a hole in his heart and a squint in his eye. He said we were very lucky. She said we were very lucky to have him, and he needed special attention. I saw Jonathan near Christmas, but otherwise we rarely saw one another. Bernie didn't go out because of her agoraphobia, and Wenzel was always working either on a farm or at a local shop, I was told. He specialized in bedding plants and worked long shifts, so didn't come to see Nan and Alan often. Agoraphobia, if you don't know, I think that's a, a fear of leaving the house or the home. Yeah, basically or go, it's almost going like a fear out. of going out or yeah. going outside. But right. yeah, it's, it's leaving the house or the home or leaving that comfort area. I mean, she, she might go next door. I don't know. I don't remember the details. She might go next door just because, you know, that's where his grandparents were. Mm-hmm. But other than that, yeah. 
it's it's sad, and I think that's another way that stress manifested itself on her in her body. Oh, 100%. To be honest, that's a I mean, anybody if you ever talk to anybody that has even slight agoraphobia, it's super stressful because they're like, "What? Why can't I leave?" I think yeah, I think it's the stress. I think that that was actually caused by the stress of her marriage. If I if I had to guess, the stress of her situation. Clearly, it wasn't there before because she was babysitting mm-hmm. in a park right uh, when she met his father. So clearly from the depression or from the situation or whatever, she's kind of developed this. Maybe That's he, what threatened, I think. he could have threatened her too. We don't know. Yeah. You know, Tracy's telling this story from his point of view when he was, you know, an infant and a toddler. Mm-hmm. So we don't know that his dad didn't threaten her saying, you won't leave the house without me. You won't do these kind of things. You but, never know. And if it, that makes sense to me, because if he did that, then it's going to help develop that fear. Like, oh, I better not leave. Exactly. Yeah. You just never know the full story. He didn't help. We know that much. Wenzel well, didn't he, help it. Yeah, he definitely that didn't much make the situation know. fucking better. No, he didn't. He didn't make it easy on her. On the odd occasion, he said, my brother Jonathan, Jonathan's a baby, mm-hmm. would be allowed around to play, and we'd make swords and shields and play warriors in the garden. He loved our manual lawnmower, a big green metal thing with huge handles, and would run around the garden with it for ages. <laughs> He mustn't. He mustn't have gotten out. He mustn't have got out a lot because of mom's agoraphobia, and how protective she was of him. Those times being able to play like two normal boys were both rare and cherished. So unfortunately, Tracy's nan passed away due to a brain tumor. Uh, Tracy recalls that she had been bleeding slightly from the ear one day. He said, and he was worried about her and. She said that she just had a headache and then laid down on a thick red fur rug in front of the fire one day. And it was there that she started to be sick. Um, He said that she had had an onion sandwich the night before and was bringing it up, he said. And he was seeing this whole thing happen. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Tracy was only nine years old, remember. This is not somebody like a... Grown up. Yeah, a grown up. Um, He panicked. He ran next door to get his father for assistance. And he reprimanded him for disturbing them. (laughs) Later that night, after an ambulance was eventually called, Tracy would get the news that Pat, his his mother's mom, had then, and the person he'd called mom for the past nine years, was dead. At this stage, Tracy wasn't understanding fully what was going on around him, and he tried to remain with his grandfather. However, Wenzel had other plans. See, it's... And it comes back to as it's escalating, right? The mm-hmm. disturbing lack of empathy. Because I don't care if it's a kid or not. You know, obviously I've got a law enforcement military background and those kind of things. But someone tells me they're bleeding from the ears. That's a telltale sign of a fucking head injury of some sort. Like there's an issue going on there. Somebody needs to take care of that, right? The other disturbing part of this is, and I apologize, Tracy, an onion sandwich? <laughs> what the fuck is that? I know, I know this is this is some English stuff, but I read that and I was like, oh, what? I've actually had them when I was over there. They're They're good. Well, I hate onions. So oh, you don't like, like onions. Okay. So to me, it's like, That's... what the fuck are you eating? Like, <laughs> not, to, not to go off topic on the story, but you know how my brain works. It's I heard onion sandwich and went, what? Well, they probably feel that way about like our bologna sandwiches. Oh, I know. We, we, we eat weird stuff to them. They eat weird stuff to us. I'm sure our listeners in Portugal and Canada, and we know Canadians do weird stuff. Do they? I don't know. They do have poutine, though. That shit is bomb. It's the best. Oh, my God. It's... I just took us made on from, the most random fucking thing. Yeah, sorry so, about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, Tracy, he says, Wenzel had started insisting that I spend three days a week, a week with him. He seemed about as happy about it as I was. <laughs> it happened so fast. One minute, I was with Alan. 
Grandpa Allen and visiting Wenzel's every so often. And then all of a sudden I was living at Wenzel's house and Allen was leaving. I was staying with Wenzel because, hey, what he says goes. I hugged Grandpa Allen and said my goodbyes. And he'd said, as though so downhearted, see you soon, lad. I was sat cross-legged on the floor watching the empty doorway he had left through. Wenzel soon... Uh, Wenzel stood in the doorway to the living room, white t-shirt and blue jeans, his glasses dulled by the living room light with no shade. You can't run around here like you did with him, you know. He can't look after you now. It's not fair to him now that there's only him there, he said. I noticed he had a paper clip holding his glasses together. He wasn't saying it in the form of an explanation. He was just saying it as like an order. Yeah. In fact, he said. And it, you know, it, it does kind of make sense when you look at culturally. We're talking about probably kind of rural England. And they're kind of back in the back in the 80s, which is this mm-hmm. would have been like right around 1991, mm-hmm. 1990. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, some parts of the countryside out there are still very old school. As in like yeah. man works, woman takes care of yeah. in the older generation like his parents would have been. So, but just without, like parts of here are very well, old yeah, school. Yeah. Without the grandmother being around, it's like he can't take care of you. He's a man. There's no woman over there to take care of you. Could be. Kind of nonsense. Maybe. Or maybe in his mind, at least. That's what stood out to me when he literally says, you know, he can't take care of you. It's not fair. It's not fair for him. So it's like it's not the man's job to take care of the kid. I didn't think about that. Now that his grandmother's gone, there's no woman there to handle it. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Who knows? I'm not pretending to understand. I think it's a good thing we don't understand Wenzel. (laughs) So not understanding Wenzel way as the only way. Tracy tried, as most kids do, to state his case. He argued with Wenzel. He said, he can. He can take care of me, in other words. He wants me there, and I want to be with him. What's the problem? He said innocently. And Wenzel was pissed. Did you just answer me back? He asked with a tone that said I'd seen trouble. He had a way of extending his words way beyond the sound they'd finished making. It was like... When a parent tells off a child, sometimes you still hear the echo of when they said stop as it resounds. It wasn't like that with this guy. It was something more and intentional. After more back and forth, Wenzel said, well, he's not your fucking dad, is he? What I say goes, understand? So this is a stark wake-up call for little Tracy. He went from having the run of his grandparents' house effectively to having to keep his mouth shut and walk on eggshells. And his siblings, who were more aware than he at how things worked, I think, under Wenzel's roof, because they were there, uh, I'm sure were probably mortified when Tracy talked back, like, oh, my God, shut up. <laughs> You're going to oh, get us all in trouble. <laughs> and just to give you an idea of how stringent things were, Tracy's description of dinner time in Wenzel's household was something that just stuck out in my mind in his book. Dinner time is supposed to be a time where... We all come together at the end of a busy day as a family and share a meal. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not the case here. I am going to let Tracy's words tell this story, and I challenge you to just put yourself in the place of him and his siblings and also his mother because, oof, this is rough. So Tracy says, dinner times were totally different. As soon as Wenzel came home from from work, the 80s music, which was current then, would be switched off, and the TV would go on. We weren't allowed to watch the snooker or boxing that he'd watch, and nobody wanted to watch Emmerdale's apart from him. 
We'd have to sit cross-legged in a line in height order from smallest to tallest facing the sofa and wait for our food in silence. When he was home, it was his time, not ours. We'd had all day to play, so couldn't do that when he was home. Food would be placed in front of us, and we'd have to wait until Wenzel had received his. Then he would ask if we wanted salt. It didn't matter what we said. There was never any salt passed around. He would take a handful and sprinkle it on his plate, then rub his fingers together over our food, pretending to put some on. Mom wasn't a great cook like Nan, and most food was undercooked, if I'm honest. We didn't mind, but it gave Wenzel another excuse to pick on her. What's this? That's not bacon. It's a fucking crack in the plate. Can't even cook properly, can you? Oh, well, at least you're good for one thing, eh? He'd always phrase things so as she would have to reply. She'd often try to ignore him, to which he'd make her respond. Hey, woman, I'm talking to you. I said at least you're good for something, aren't you? She'd look at the kids embarrassed, and she'd have to say yeah, and return with her food. When he picked up his knife and fork, we were allowed to start eating. If we started before, he'd stop us. Think you're the man of, ho- man of the house now, do you? Now you can wait until everyone else has eaten. Sometimes we'd get to eat after they had. Sometimes he'd just say, didn't want it, did you not? Fine then, and then take it away. This happened to me a few times because I would throw my mind to Alan's when Wenzel was home. As I was concentrating, he'd take the food. No, I wasn't waiting for you guys to finish. I'll eat it, I said. I only asked once. You should have thought of that before, shouldn't you? He walked off with my plate, and I heard it slide into the bin. I had to be really careful at mealtimes, Tracy said. Well, we all did when he was home. If we ate all of the food, we got insulted. This got me. If we ate all of the food, we got insulted. You're a gannet, you know that? Like a glutton? Mm -hmm. Like a big food bin. Food costs money, you know? You think I work for my health? And if we left any on our plate, as I did a fair share of times because I didn't like the peas or onions, then he'd go off on his favorite tangent. There are kids in Africa dying. (laughs) Who could have had that? We've said that to our kids a million times. They're starving kids in Africa. I think everybody, every parent has kind of said that. Um, You're nothing but a waste. You care about nobody apart from yourself. Don't even care about your old dad, do you? I'd never reply. If I replied, I'd have to tell the truth. Yes, I care about my dad, but my dad's next door. Yeah, I think every parent has said, Oh, there's starving kids in Africa. We didn't follow on saying you're worthless and all that stuff afterwards. No, or we didn't. If you did eat, you're like, hey, you little fatty. Like, what are you doing over Jeez. there? Like, so you can't, you can't, you can't win. No, you either, you have to pick which one you want to be called. You want yeah. to be taunted for not eating enough and not finishing your food, or you want to be taunted for eating too much and causing the family strife because he hasn't worked for a living just to feed you. All he wants to do is just go back home. That's all he wants to do. He just wants right, to go back to Because until he was nine, his. Grandparents raised him. I mean, his dad was his dad, but he didn't, wasn't the father figure in his life. Bio dad. Tracy just wanted to go back and live with his grandpa, Alan, and he would tell him that every time he saw him. But since he wasn't technically his father, there wasn't a hell of a whole lot he could do, you know? They just had to do whatever Wenzel wanted, unfortunately. Tracy just wanted to go back and live with him. However, he did have his moments in time where he honestly got to enjoy his mother and make some memories with her. Even if those memories did come with some harsh reminders of the abuse they were all suffering. He said, 
I'd get snapped back to reality by my mother dancing with us, which was nice and I really enjoyed until she came too close and the alcohol from her breath caught in my throat. I didn't like that at all, but I loved the dancing. I'd not felt more connected nor more free than when dancing with mom, Jonathan, and Caroline, all of his siblings. It was okay for me to call her mom now, and not just because I had to, but okay because I wanted to. I'd grown to understand her. That's so sweet. Yeah. Nine years old, and he understands her. Yeah. I mean, obviously he doesn't like that she's drinking, what kid likes when their parents are drinking. but Of course. But, I mean, can you blame her? No, I was about to say, but Jesus. sure as he got older, too, he was like, oh. She needs to, it's, and that's the only place she can escape in her own mind, you know? And what's sad about it is, you know, and how fortunate it is, you know, obviously it bothered him that she was smelling like alcohol, but, you know, as you grow into adult, I'm sure he is, and we all realize that it was almost a blessing because it made her escape from all that, that nonsense. was her only escape and she was able to do the things like he's talking about here where she was she was dancing with them because you're probably a little tipsy yeah and it made her forget about all the other stuff and she just enjoyed her, her fucking kids yeah while, that's all she wanted to do anyway but she couldn't raging douche rockets not homer he's doing his own thing <laughs> being a douchebag somewhere else raging douche rocket <laughs> so <laughs> so i believe i spoke about this earlier but the stress of living in such a toxic environment 24 7 can manifest itself physically it is such a strange phenomena, and Tracy expands on that here in this excerpt where he says, she kept that straight face because it was her protection against Winslow. She could control whether to smile or not, what to eat, or if to eat or not. Winslow controlled everything and everyone. She needed a little space that was hers. And as she didn't have it outwardly in her life, she found a way to get it mentally. That was okay. I understood. We all wanted that, and it would manifest itself in different ways for all of us. Caroline had a stutter, and Mom had agoraphobia and obsessive-compulsive disorder. I don't really think it was obsessive-compulsive disorder, though. She would hide the sugar and separate the coffee into two pots, so as one was for her and one was for Wenzel. If you ask me, she just wanted something to herself that wasn't contaminated by her husband. That's pretty poignant. Yeah, it's, it makes a ton of sense, too. And I can totally understand just wanting one single solitary thing to belong to you, even if it's just coffee or sugar, you know, like anything. They all just lived walking on eggshells, unable to have their own identity in a way. Another memory Tracy has of his mother was, once again, at dinner time. And dinner time really seems to be where Wenzel holds court, so to speak. Well, they're all sitting there. They're all sitting there. So he can just... Act like he's the king of the throne. He used, he uses mealtime to rain down control on everyone. Absolutely. Tracy recalls, it was food time again. Mom had brought the last plate of food in for herself and sat at the end of the sofa in the corner of the room, Wenzel beside her. Smile, he said, looking at her. Oh, I hate it when people tell you smile. Miserable cow. Smile, he yes. added. I know. He added when she didn't smile. Mom ignored him. Usually, she'd give him a half-second smile. She hadn't, and everyone noticed this wasn't good. I had learned to be very aware of body language, and this was not good at all. Wenzel's shoulders were up. He relaxed them and prodded Mom with a fork in her arm. Ow, she said, pulling away and shooting him a look. He did it again. Don't that hurt, she said. That doesn't hurt, he said, laughing, and prodded her again, this time in the forearm. Forearm. She pulled away 
and put her knife and fork down. Oh, don't be silly. I'm only playing, he said, grabbing her hair and pulling her down towards him. He held her as though in a headlock, but without putting any pressure on, and then let her go. Mom was holding her plate steady as Wenzel played the idiot. Mom sat up. You find it funny, don't you? He asked the kids. Of course, if we didn't reply, we knew we'd be hit. If we said no, we'd be hit. So we said yes, or worse, if we acted scared in any way. That was Wenzel's thing. Fear, he thrived from it. You're not scared of me, are you? He said in such a way he made it sound like, you weren't before, but you soon will be. He continued to prod mom with a fork until she threw the meal on the floor and stormed into the kitchen. He followed, calmly rising from his chair and giving us a very brief, I know what I'm doing, smile, before he went into the kitchen. I didn't see what happened, but there was screaming coming from the kitchen, and it wasn't Wenzel. Mom brought food in one by one. I wasn't hungry, but then I was never hungry. He told me to sit down. As soon as the kids' plates were out, just getting yours and mine, she replied, it was never ours. It was always yours and mine. She handed him a plate. He snatched it and grabbed her wrist, pulling her down. About fucking time. Sit down. I'm trying to watch this. She rubbed her wrist, and he laughed. That didn't hurt, he added. Yeah, Mom said, lowering her head. That did not hurt. He started tapping her face with the back of his hand repeatedly. She pulled away. Stop it, she said, glancing at him, and then putting her head down. That didn't hurt, he said, grabbing her wrist with both hands and pulling her towards him in the middle of the sofa. No, please, she said, high-pitched. So he Chinese burnt her head. Like, you know the Chinese burn? Like a noogie? Yeah. We used to do that. We used to do Indian burns. Indian burn. I think it's just called something different. Yeah. He's just... He's poking her. He's bullying her. He's poking, yeah, he's bullying her. She winced, and, she winced and tried pulling away, but he wouldn't let her and gave her a, you know what you'll get in a minute look. The kids, please, she said as she looked at us. Well, should I do it? I couldn't let others answer. I knew whatever they said was bad. This was trouble waiting to happen. If anyone said yes, mom got told, see, even the fucking kids hate you. You're useless and he'd burn her. I know, I'd seen it before. If we said no, then we'd be stood in the middle of the room and slapped until we cried and then told to stop crying. Or mom would be hurt in front of us to prove he could do what he wanted no matter what. I looked him dead in the eye and said the only thing I could think of, which was, good day. (laughs) He's just trying to... Just trying to avoid further nonsense. Right, divert. Yeah, exactly. It's a diversion tactic. So Wenzel laughed and said, Good day. Eat your food, you little smart-ass shit. Your mom's gone to a lot of trouble over the sorry state of a meal, haven't you, babe? He said, twiddling her hair as she tried not to pull away. I was scared. I knew I couldn't let him see I was scared. If I did, he'd enjoy it all the more. Fear was his drug. If I was scared, he could do anything. Total control. It could have ended in me being dragged upstairs, his fingers biting into my arm. Even though I'd walk and never let myself be dragged, sometimes it just happened. I couldn't run ahead to help my momentum catch up. If I ran ahead, he'd just yank me down the stairs by my shirt, and that was worse. Anything that involved falling or lack of balance was bad, very bad. 
I'd just walk and accept whatever was coming. Usually it was slaps, head, arms, legs, back, anything he could hit. Sometimes he used a slipper and yanked my trousers down. I'd be dragged across his lap. It hurt, but nothing like slaps. I've taken a few punches, had my head rock when I took a punch, which felt like marbles rattling in a box, even after my head had stopped moving. Like the pain's echo lingers just to taunt for a while longer. Some nights I would have I would have made one mistake or another and told to sit back. That meant I'd have to move myself backwards away from my plate at least three feet and watch the others eat. I remember automatically looking at mom to save me and know that she'd feel guilty and she'd not eat. He'd have a go at her again then, which would naturally be my fault. When everyone else had finished, I'd watch my plate get taken away. What, you want it now? Should have thought about that before, shouldn't you? My food would vanish into the bin. I'd still have to reply, yes, sir. And if I said, sir, and he thought I was being sarcastic, it was slaps time. So, geez, we're seeing that his father ultimately thrives on keeping everyone on the edge of their seat and terrified to make a move or say or do the wrong thing. Yeah, and, you know, I get irritated with it, right? Mm Because what it tells me about his father is that his father is an insignificant little man. Mm Mm-hmm. That wants to feel big. Wants to feel big and tough and in control, but he can only do it over a woman he's beaten down for a decade or more mm-hmm. and children because he's a pussy and a little bitch. And if he did that with a grown-ass man, he'd get his fucking teeth knocked out. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I can't stand dudes. And he does later. And I can't stand dudes that act like that. that I know. Control and fear. You do control over fear of somebody that you can physically dominate. You don't do yeah. it over somebody that, of just everyone. You're That's just all a, they're capable of doing, punk. though. Yeah. And it makes me want to just knock his front teeth out because I can't stand dudes that call themselves men that act like that. Well, he messed, he tangoed with the wrong guy. Yeah, he finally gets brave enough because he thinks he's in control of everything. And yeah, usually that happens. Usually they tangle with someone because they get too boldened and brazened, if you will. Yeah. And then they get slapped back to Sunday by a grown ass man and then they just go back home and take it out on everybody else. It's just sad to me because none of the kids have an opportunity to feel safe. And home is a place where you should absolutely feel the most safe. And these kids aren't afforded that luxury no, at all. No, and they have to take their decisions to decide, do I get beat or do I let mom get beat for us? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you have to either sacrifice yourself as a nine, seven, six, five-year-old, mm-hmm. or you have to let your mom take it for you and knowing it's your fault. However, Tracy's a far better person than I think either you or I because he says that none of this is mentioned out of malice or desire to cause harm or pain. He's at and has been at a place in his life where he holds no ill will whatsoever towards Wenzel. His he, words. Well, he part of his growing part of growing up from an abuser and abusive situation is getting past it in your own way. Yeah. Whether that's just letting it go, whether that's forgiving them, whether that's just you know just dealing with whatever anger you have, he's clearly moved on from it. Maybe this book was his way of doing it. It it could be it could be part of his you know healing his, his journey. Healing and his therapy is let me tell my story so other people hear about it. Maybe prevent someone else from dealing with it, or that's just healthy for me. That's how I got to do it. These events I think need to be told to explain exactly the type of character Wenzel had and how that fits in with eventually killing his wife Bernie, Tracy's mom. Wenzel apparently likes his games. 
Tracy oh, he, said. He likes to fucking play. You can tell that he with loves what he to does. play his games. That's he's already doing that with his mom at dinner. Like he's poking and prodding her, and then he's getting the kids to chime in to taunt her more or beat the game. It's all it's all a fucking game. Right. Exactly. Speaking of games, Tracy says that corner was another one of his games. I knew the rules. So you go up to the corner, one step away from the corner of uh, their yellow living room wall, and that was Tracy's place. He said, I had to have my hands by my sides, relaxed, and facing straight ahead with my feet together. I'm surprised I recall the color of those walls. I spent so much time staring through them rather than at them. It's strange to explain those feelings where I'd been stationary for so long, staring at a wall, and yet aware of everything going on around me. More often than not, the slightest sound, and I could place what it was and who had made it. If you're walking around busy, you don't really notice your legs that much because you're moving in different ways. However, stood in one spot for hours eventually, you notice it a lot. So it's good to move your feet and legs around a little. But I can imagine, because we all put our kids like in corners when they're bad, or a lot of people use the corner tactic. Corner or timeout or whatever. But I'm sure Wenzel's was... Yeah, I'm just saying. Not, yeah. I was going to say, a lot of people do it, but, you know, it's not bad necessarily as long as you do it, like, correctly or in moderation. But I'm sure, like, we're talking, like, we put a kid in the corner for five minutes. God knows how long this poor kid was in. I'm sure putting him in the corner for hours. hours. Jesus. So, the estate, their estate was set up all wrong. Mackles filled football ground, had a pub, less than five minutes walk away from their Street And if you go down Moore Hill Road, the street they lived on, the very road he used to live on, then you'll find the Golden Lion Pub. The opposing supporters of the football teams would go into different pubs to drink and I'm sure get drunk and rowdy. And later on, of course, any violence would be met like in the middle ground or Moore Hill Road, as it was better known. Football hooligans. I liken it to Patrick growing up in Philly and the Philadelphia Eagles fans brawling with opponents. Yeah, it's a little different, man, (laughs) because obviously we're talking about European football for all us Americans. We're talking about soccer here. Oh, Um, very true. And you're talking about soccer hooligans or football hooligans. You're talking about like Green Street hooligans. Yeah. Like literally in the movie, they literally have gangs over there. And I'm sure anybody from Great Britain and some of those countries can can attest to this. They have literally, like, basically gangs that follow these teams that go to the other towns. Hooligans. Taunt the other team's gang. And they yeah. basically brawl it out in the streets. Yep. And imagine it right on the road where your house is. <laughs> yeah, literally outside your house. It was like a hooligan fight. So before Tracy was nine, he'd already had a stab victim on his sofa from one of these brawls. The poor kid was just no stranger to violence. Like, he just was in the deep throes of it, you know? It was always around. Um, but at least he had his grandpa, Alan. And he seems just like the salt of the earth kind of guy. So I Sounds like a good old grandpa. He does. So let's talk about grandpa, Alan, the good times, and unfortunately how Tracy lost him, the last piece of his safety net, so to speak. Absolutely. Tracy would say, I recall the stories I was told about Alan's epilepsy. He was epileptic. The time he moved uh, house and had a fit a few days later. That night, he woke up and walked downstairs. He opened the front door and peed in the street, thinking it was a toilet. Nan wouldn't wake him in case it set a fit off. It did cause a bit of a scene for the people having a garden party across the road. (laughs) That's funny. In another story, he'd flipped up out of bed repeatedly into a wood chip wallpaper, 
smacking his face into the wall in the process. He'd spent a week in the hospital, and Nan and I visited him. We brought apple pie, which was his favorite. I don't remember it, but Alan told me about it. When we left, he'd asked the nurse who we were, and she said, that's your wife and son, she replied. Holy shit, I'm married, he responded. (laughs) (laughs) You're having fun with it. That's funny. (laughs) I knew exactly what to do if he had a fit. I'd learned not to let him grab me if he went into a fit and all about the recovery position. He'd usually come around within an hour or so and take another half or half an hour to get his bearings. It was Christmas Eve and the place was bare. She'd not approve of this lad, Alan said earlier in the day after Nan had passed away because mm-hmm. she always decorated yeah. really, yeah. really well for Christmas. I pretended not to hear him. It didn't matter. We had each other. I'm tired, Dad. I said later, heading to bed. He was right. The place was bare. She wouldn't approve. She'd always made a huge Christmas show of Christmas, but hey, she was dead. That was the bottom line. She was dead, and we were here, and we had to just be ourselves and survive. I hated Christmas, and I hated people. I got up in the morning, and Alan smiled. Brew, like cup of tea. I jumped on the bed beside him and tucked into some, and tucked into some bickies, which is like biscuits or cookies. Come on, then. Let's go and see what the day holds for us, he said, jumping out of bed, pushing me backwards playfully. I wasn't excited. I had no reason to be. Alan nodded for me to go in front of him as we went downstairs. I opened the living room door, and it was magical. There were lights up everywhere, along the top of the curtains, over the sofa, around the fireplace. Even the TV had a set of lights around it. Stood in front of the window was our huge tree on top was an electric angel that had a halo and a book that lit up in gold. The wings sparkled. Every year, Nan had a star, and this year, she had her heart set on that angel. Alan had done it all by himself on his own on Christmas Eve. Beneath the tree were loads of presents. It's so sweet. He decorated. I knelt down in in front of the tree, and Alan joined me. We weren't playing. Neither of us were religious, as far as I knew. We just took those five minutes for Nan and sat in silence. Neither of us spoke, and we didn't need to, and then it happened. We cried at exactly the same time. We both just burst into tears, and the heavens opened and ran down our faces. We held each other and cried until we could cry no more. I remember his big green jumper being soaked in my tears. He took his green woolen hat off and wiped his tears away, too. He passed me a parcel, and I pushed it away. We'd got you these. I went and got the parcel from upstairs, and Alan opened his new Western books Nan and I had bought him. Thanks, lad, he said, rubbing my head. My granddad and my best friend. That night, the black and white portable TV clicked off. Night, lad, he said. Night, granddad, I replied. And there was an emptiness where we both thought, Night, Pat. (laughs) It's so sweet. (sighs) It's hard to read. <laughs> it's so touching. Yeah, it's sad, but it's it's adorable at the same time. It's good memories for him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a memory he needs from that time period. The huge water butt was full and had ice over outside because of the snow. I chucked my wellies on as I could see Alan pushing down on it hard, and it looked fun as the huge ice circle wobbled around. I could see it bouncing softly over the lip of the huge blue bucket, and it was really thick. Here, lad, he waved me over as I plodded through the snow towards him. He lifted the whole circle out 
and placed it standing up on the floor in front of me. Go on, then, he said with a huge grin. What? I said. Give it a whack, lad. I laughed. It was very thick and cold. It looked amazing, but I wasn't going to hit it. Give it a kick, then, he said. And I did a few times, and it didn't break. Your turn, granddad, I said, raising my arms to hold the top of this thing. We rolled it against the fence post. Alan asked if I wanted another go before he broke it. No, you won't break it, I said, knowing he was capable of such things with ease. He stepped back, and I heard him take a short breath and rapidly, and then let out twice as fast as he stepped forwards. Hi! The ice ring went clean in half and fell to the ground, and I bowed to him in Aikido style. (laughs) (laughs) Sensei. (laughs) Sensei. I was sleeping on the floor in Nan's room, as I had when she was alive. It was still in Nan's room, although she'd been dead more than two months. We could still sense her there, and we're in the same routines as though she was still alive. We even watched the same programs. I knew he'd not settle straight away. He hadn't since Pat passed. I waited for his breathing to change before I let myself sleep. When I woke up, it was dark, and I could hear movement. The moon left enough light for me to make out a figure on Alan's side of the bed. He got up to go to the toilet. had an idea. He wouldn't even see it coming, and it'd be funny. I heard him curse as he walked into the corner of the bed, and I knew one of two things happened. Either he'd walk past, I'd trip him, he'd fall, and we'd play fight on the floor, or he'd see me trying to trip him and kick me away and jump on me, and then we'd play fight on the floor. Neither of these things happened. Granddad took a step in front of my feet, and I reacted. I spun to the side, straightened my leg and ankle, keeping them tense, and turned my foot, knocking into him perfectly, just how he taught me. Got him. He tripped, and the second he started to fall, I knew something was badly wrong. He fell forwards, immediately went into a fit. He toppled and fell, hitting the radiator by the wall. I heard it rattle in the dark, but didn't see the impact, and then he was upright again and falling backwards, straight down like a falling wall. His head hit the floor hard. He landed on Nan's bathrobe, which I'd used to cover myself up because it still smelt of her. It did nothing to hide the vibrations through the floorboard of his head hitting them. I remember the sound of the pipes rattling to this day. I grabbed his face and tried to remember everything I'd been told. He was having an epileptic seizure. Don't move him. Get help. Don't put anything in his mouth. Don't let him grab you. When he stopped shaking, put him in the recovery position. All the information hit me within milliseconds. He wasn't shaking, he wasn't moving, and as far as I could tell, he wasn't breathing. I knew if he wasn't breathing, he would needed immediate help. He must have slept in his jeans because his keys were on a chain attached to them and currently in his pocket. I could see the chain and the bulge. I crawled over him and dug my hand deep down, struggling to remove the keys on a metal clasp. I ran downstairs and into the front door, literally, I fumbled with the keys and ran outside. My memory blanks here. I don't know who I told first. I don't know where I was or where I went or what happened. I do recall the verdict. Brain hemorrhage, just like Nan. I also remember it was two days until his Doberman lay down and died. Oddly, the only memory I have of our old dog, I couldn't tell anyone. I was destroyed. I'd lost both my parents as far as I was concerned. That's rough. That's rough. So, 
Right here is where everything changed for Tracy. His safety net had effectively been jerked out from under him. I believe that this was the start of, I know he's had trauma before this, but I believe that this was the start of his real trauma. Well, absolutely. There's no safety anymore. Like you said, the safety net, the protective layer, it's gone. And the start of becoming mute. He was, he struggled with that as well. Like you said, the physical manifestations. His sister had a stutter. Exactly. His mom had agoraphobia. And now he becomes mute because he has nothing else. The knowledge that the people you trusted the most to care for you, the people who have saved you from the things that they were scared of themselves were dead, and you were living in the very home they didn't approve of, he said. So it's like, God. Exactly. And he's nine. You know? This it's is a lot to happen to a nine-year-old. I know. It's a lot to happen to any age. A much less nine. So Tracy moved back to his biological mom and dad's house, and his poor mom just wasn't doing very well. He said her depression got worse and she drank heavily after losing her mom and now her dad. On the very rare occasion, she tried to um, go out to the lamppost just outside and she'd freak out. Remember, she's suffering from agoraphobia. She'd only go because Auntie Betty or Maggie would promise her a bottle of sherry if she made it. <laughs> Whatever works. Got her out to get the booze. That's right. I'd watch from the bottom of Moore Hill Road and usually stood beside Wenzel, who'd repeat, she won't make it, silly cow. Never does. Fucking waste of space. Wow. So supportive. Thanks, Wenzel. Douche rocket, like I said. So as soon as she'd get home, whoever had taken her and Wenzel would say how well she'd done and how proud they were for her trying. Then their visitor would leave and he'd start up. Waste of time. That wasn't it. Don't know why you bother. So there's that psychopathic charm that we all know. They tend to put on show for visitors and the general public, and then as soon as they leave, then their true colors come out. Exactly. Wenzel would say things to Bernie like, if it wasn't for me, you'd have nothing. Fucking useless you are. What are you? She'd look down and he'd repeat. Remember, he always makes her answer. An answer. Yeah. And she'd have to say, and he'd be like, well, I'm talking to you. And he'd pull her chin up to meet his gaze. What are you? Eventually, she would have to say, I'm useless. Then Wenzel would be like, that's right. Don't fucking forget it. I mean, at that point, you just want it to end, you know, but God after, so you'd say it, but God after hearing it for so long, you start to believe it. You start bit. to believe it. Like, yeah, I am useless. I can't stop this. I can't. Yeah, exactly. It's just so sad. So no wonder poor Bernie was suffering. So I really believe her stress was manifesting itself as stress does into a very real disorder like agoraphobia or Depression or God knows. All of the above. Probably 10 million more things going on in that poor woman's mind that yeah. we'll never know about, you know? Exactly. So Tracy said that he and his siblings all knew if she didn't reply, he'd slap her around. And that if and that and if that didn't get a reply, he'd start in on the kids. And usually it would be Tracy. He was the oldest. He was the oldest, yeah. He said, I'd take a few whacks, and he'd insult Bernie and Caroline until Mom said, I'm useless. Then he'd stop, but not until he'd dished her in order to make food or get upstairs, because that's all you're good for, right? Yeah, well, he's control again. Ugh. So I guess one bright spot in this sad tale is that Wenzel never hit the baby of the family, Tracy's little brother, Jonathan. Tracy says, I remember that day well. Jonathan was playing with a plastic washing basket, and Wenzel gave Bernie the sort him out kind of look. She replied, he's just playing. 
Wenzel stared at her, and she moved the basket away from Jonathan, who promptly just went back over to play with it. They're kids, you know? He's a little kid. He's a baby. Wenzel slammed his plate down and stood up, heading towards Jonathan. Bernie threw herself at him. I'd never seen her move like that. Like a cat. She'd gone from feet curled beneath her on the sofa to on top of Wenzel instantly. I'll kill you, you bastard. Touch him, I'll kill you. He spun and went flying. Jonathan and I ran to opposite corners of the room. She clawed his face. He hit her and grabbed her wrist, forcing her downwards. She was in obvious pain, but looked straight at him. You can do what you want to me, but you do not touch him. Her eyes were like steel. The only time I saw her stand up for herself, and I knew beyond doubt that if he touched Jonathan, she, she would kill him. Yeah. This poor lady is just stuck right now, and that's the best way I can describe it. She's not only a prisoner of her own mind, but in a way, she's a prisoner of her husband's. She literally is at a place where she cannot leave. And this is a prime example of why we can never look at an abusive domestic violence situation and say, well, why didn't you just leave? I hate it when people say that. Sometimes you can't. We never know the whole story, ever. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. No, but it's, it's, you know, that piece of the story is very uplifting in the fact that, you know, you can see his mom is not completely, completely and utterly broken because the baby has not been affected by all the bullshit. Yeah. And that was her saying this baby, this child has not been abused by you, hasn't been affected by all this fucking horse shit. Mm-hmm. You're not going to fucking do it to him. Mm-hmm. I will fucking kill you before you hurt this child because you already fucked with the other two. Yeah. The other one. See, and I thought, it, w- and we'll have to ask Tracy what he thinks, but I thought too it was because maybe, remember he had the hole in his heart? Maybe she was extra. Yeah, I'm sure that too. she's extra. Well, she's, that played into it. She's known it. to be extra protective of him and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But at the same time, you know, in my opinion, that was her last straw because that's the last kid that hasn't been affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. God. So, Wenzel wasn't violent for a while after that. <laughs> Tracy said, maybe even a week. Like, you went a whole week without kicking somebody's ass. Good job. Big man. Big man. The thing to remember is that as a kid, these things were not unusual. The insults and violence were a normal part of everyday living. And Tracy says they totally accepted it because. They, they didn't know to. any different. They had to. And they didn't know any different. They literally didn't know. Yeah, Tracy else. knew some different. But they, he yeah, he knew different, but he had to. What choice did they have? The situation worsened, and Tracy goes much more in depth in his book, Tracy's Story, which is why you got to read it. Wenzel eventually got on the wrong side. And this is what when I was telling Patrick that Wenzel got a little dose of what it's like to fuck with a, with a, with a guy because he always goes for the weaker. Wenzel eventually got on the wrong side of Bernie's brother, Clive, who is a mountain of a man with a huge criminal record. Wenzel used to lend him his car to keep him sweet. (laughs) However, there were only so many rumors about Wenzel's cheating that Clive could take. And now Alan and Pat were dead, his mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And now that they were dead, he snapped. And I guess... He probably kept... They probably kept him from beating the shit out of this dude a couple times. Probably. So um, he put Wenzel in the hospital. Of course, poor little Tracy witnessed the whole damn thing. It was awful, even though Wenzel still deserved it. He deserved an ass beating. But um, he broke his back. Good lord. I know. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, violence is never the answer, but like. That's a, that's a beating. I think, I mean, if it's going to happen. Couldn't it happen to a nicer yeah. guy? We'll put it that way. Wenzel was out of the hospital less than two days later on crutches. 
his back had been broken, like I said. At least that's what he tells everyone. If his back was broken, he wasn't on crutches. He looked like he was in a lot of pain. However, he was able to walk. But then again, that's Wenzel's version, and you just never know what the truth could really be, you know? Anyways, long story short, in the space of two nights, Tracy's family had gone from what they thought was a normal, uh, sturdy upbringing to living in a car and being homeless. They were homeless now. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tracy, but I believe that Wenzel didn't want to go back. I asked Tracy if it was because he was afraid of charges being pressed or something. And Tracy said he thinks that he was scared that Clive would come back and finish him, bust him up. And so this is what happened in Tracy's words after they were homeless. We were bundled into the car. Bernie in the front seat, despite her pleas of agoraphobia. Remember, she's terrified to be out of the house. Oh, yeah. A fear of the outdoors. Jonathan, Jody, and Caroline side by side in the back, and me as well. I was wedged against the back sloping window. We were homeless for weeks. We'd travel around from hotel to hotel, place to place, friends to friends, and relative to relative, until eventually the money just ran out. Wenzel was fuming with Bernie and the kids on and off because that was his nature. Bernie was in silent mode constantly until she wasn't, and then she'd snap at Wenzel. We'd bathe in public swimming baths and shared chips at the local park, but essentially we were hungry, broke, and homeless. So here is where the kids were the kids were effectively split up, and it's hard to imagine. I know None of them understood what was happening, and despite the abuse, all they'd ever known is the chaos that they were living in. So they finally entered the social services office. Well, they're homeless. You're homeless with four kids. Mm -hmm. You have to do something. Eventually, someone's going to catch on, and someone's going to snap in there. So they went to the social service office, and Tracy says the following. We sat in the waiting room. What's happening, Caroline asked me quietly as Jonathan played with the toys and Mom and Wenzel were in the other room talking to social workers. I don't know. It's not good. I replied, putting as much emphasis on not good as I possibly could. I had that stomach feeling again, the one I'd had with Nan and Alan. That wasn't just bad. This is very bad. Jonathan kept trying to play with the plastic bat and ball set in the corner of the room. We kept saying no, because we didn't know if it was allowed. A social worker came out. Why don't you play outside? This may take a while. Jonathan sat down next to me and none of us moved. It's a nice day out, the lady said. We remained seated. Dad, I called. It's okay, go out, he said. We got up and the woman handed Jonathan the golf club set and his face lit up while Caroline's and mine fell. This was not good. I paced around a garden area with a tree in it. I was in my own little world. Why here? What is this place? What do they do? I had no answers. Is mom going to the hospital again? Perhaps it's about the agoraphobia and even the, and even how sad she's been recently. No, can't be that. It's a bad boy school because of the word search, perhaps. No, this isn't a school. You okay? Caroline asked me, touching my shoulder. No, I said, pointing at the rooms. This isn't good. We need to leave and go back to Macclesfield, find a house, any house, even Rochdale. This is not good. He says we were all playing hit the ball with the bat when Mom and Wenzel and a female social worker came out of the building. Are we off, I asked. 
wanting to be out of there as soon as possible so they could give me whatever bad news they had when we had left. I stood by Wenzel's car. The social worker spoke. You're going to go stay in a nice house with another family while your mom and dad find somewhere to live for you. Then you can come back, she said. She had yellow hair. I'd never seen yellow hair before. (laughs) That's so cute. She spoke with authority. This is happening. This is not a question. I ignored her and looked at Wenzel and mom. He was cold, unfeeling, just waiting for it to be over. Bernie had been crying. She had tears in her eyes but was holding them back. Come back? I asked anyone who was listening but replying to the social worker. Yes, when they find somewhere to live, the social worker said. It was sunny, but I could feel it. So if you read his book, he tells you all about the foster home or the council house that him and Caroline were living in because he went with Caroline and the other two went somewhere else. It's usually how they always split up the, the younger two and the older two. Yeah. But to sum it up quickly, it took him a while to become accustomed to a new way of life and a new set of rules. He was safe, it seems, for now, though. Um, He said, later when I became accustomed to the routine, I'd get up and dress straight away for breakfast at the breakfast bar. And when I say bar, I mean half kitchen length entire bar, complete with wooden bar stools and a variety of cereals, all in plastic containers. We could have cereal and one piece of toast or two pieces of toast. If I wanted more, I could top on as much fruit as I wanted. Then it was upstairs for a wash and teeth cleaning. Grab my bag and sit downstairs in the living room until it was school time. Usually, we would watch Saved by the Bell. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Or the Big Breakfast. After school, it was straight home and upstairs for homework and changed, then down for a full meal with dessert. Elbow off the tables and back straight with knife and fork in the proper hands. No sandwiches. Bread was a side piece I could cut up on my plate, but not make a sandwich out of my food. So he's, he, it's like a stable environment right now, you know? Yeah, they're teaching them manners, yeah. they're teaching them structure, they're he's teaching just getting rules. getting used to it. Like real rules, not like, if you don't do this, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Rules. Yeah, yeah. And he even says swearing was a huge no-no. Yeah, they're just teaching them class and customs and courtesies and He said, I'd, I'd grown up with it to the point that it was part of my natural language. I knew a fucker from a bastard a mile away. If he could be a fucker, he was usually an okay guy. But if he was a bastard, he was plain evil. <laughs> I remember walking into my room for the first time up the well-kept clean staircase and turn left past pictures of all the other children Brenda, his foster mom, had looked after. They all come back, you know. They always do, she'd tell me. I turned left and was met with a poster of Robbie Fowler on the door with Liverpool in bold letters straight across the top. I was hopeless at football. I had never played at school, and the lads on Moore Hill Road who played were always cutting people's clotheslines down and stealing from gardens, so I rarely played with them. This wasn't going to go well. A ginger-haired lad a few years older than me appeared out of nowhere. I'd never seen hair so bright, his face full of freckles. Who do you support? I guess he was being friendly, but at the time I felt like an intrusion. How dare he presume I support anyone or that I even want to talk? He said, uh, Liverpool? I replied, not having a clue about football. (laughs) Who's your best player? He asked. I pointed to the poster. Him. I said and walked into the room I had been told was mine. He walked in behind me and I expected trouble. Wasn't this my room? 
The room had two bunk beds and little Jim, who was twice my width (laughs) and at least a foot taller, jumped up onto a bunk to the right and leaned his elbow watching me. Our room, my room, he said, lifting his oversized head up, oversized head up slightly to get a better view of the new guy. Yours, he said, pointing to the other bunk. Great, just great, I thought, staring at the small shiny gloss on the wood on the wood of the wardrobe with no idea what I should be doing or where to look. I wondered where Wenzel and Mom were. So not long after he was settled into the foster home, if you can call it settled. Yeah. Um, he was able to see his mom and Wenzel and his mom for the final time. It's important that I let him tell you exactly what happened that last visit because this is the, like I said, the last time he ever saw his mother yeah, exactly. again. He said, Mom and Wenzel turned up uh, at the foster home for a visit. Mom remained silent on the sofa, so she didn't play with us or talk to us as much as I can recall. Brenda did the airs and graces bit with little china cups, saucers, and a tiny plate with biscuits on, and then added, tell your parents what a great time you've had. Carolyn jumped on that immediately. I remained quiet long enough for Wenzel and Mom to pick up a problem to the point that Brenda said, Tell them what you've been doing then. Yeah, wonderful, I replied. (laughs) I don't remember them leaving, but mom had sat totally motionless the entire time. She was in her own world, and whatever she was seeing wasn't pretty. I wasn't offended or upset. I knew mom was dealing with things the best way she knew how. Our inner worlds can be really helpful when it comes to seeing harsh shit, and she was rolling with it to survive. I knew something wasn't right with mom, and I used to wake up having nightmares about it. I'd see her. I'd see her hurt or upset and feel that something wasn't right. I remember waking up to Brenda, my foster mother, holding my arms tightly because I'd slept on the bottom bunk, and in my sleep, I'd be fighting. It was visiting day again, and we were going out with Mom and Wenzel. Yes, I'll bet they found a home. After Wenzel and Brenda exchanged pleasantries, we were bundled into the car. We went to the car park just down the road by the River Weaver. None of us hugged. We never did. I just wanted I just wanted to be like those other families. It wasn't done. Mom stood watching the ducks while Wenzel sat on a wall nearby. I threw a stone into the water. Caroline sat on a swing by a very small children's area. Wenzel wanted to know what we'd been doing. We didn't say. He said they didn't have a place yet, but soon would. That was the last time I'd see my mother alive. A few days passed, if that... Then the social worker who dropped me into Brenda's that day turned up to see us. Her name was Trish Farrow. She was a social worker. I sat on the sofa at Brenda's. It was blue. She sat opposite me and Carolyn sat beside me. Brenda was in the doorway. I could tell by her face that something was wrong. She wasn't upset. She was concrete-faced. Hi, guys. You okay? Trish said with fake happiness. Something was very wrong. I eyed Brenda, who was checking out our physical responses. I hated being red. I switched her off in my head. What I have to tell you isn't easy to say, Trish said. She was going to go on to say something else when I cut in. What? I asked. She sighed. Your mom was found dead this morning. Carolyn had taken an instant stony expression. I could feel it. How? I asked. Trish looked at Brenda who gave a short nod. She was killed. She started. 
Clive, I said, staring deep into Trisha's eyes. I was certain it had to be Clive. No, no, not Clive, she replied. I must have looked quizzical because it didn't make any sense to me. Who? I asked her. Your dad. He handed himself in to the police earlier today. I don't remember the rest. Some said I went upstairs and was in the bathroom an hour. All I remember is being on a push bike my granddad made me and flying around the Winsford estate over and over repeating father killed mother over and over again in my head. I knew I had to remember it. I had to drill it in so it couldn't move or else I'd forget it and I couldn't forget it. I'm the oldest. I take care of mom when Winslow's not around. Mom's dead. Nan and Alan are dead. Who am I? Father killed mother. Father killed mother over and over and over again. I cannot remember exactly what started it, but I remember thinking, I don't want to talk anymore. And that was it. I was bombarded with therapist after therapist, friendship after friendship. I had listening ears coming out of my ears, and yet I'd not said a word for about six months, maybe longer. I just had nothing to say and nobody to care about. I lay on the bottom bunk and punched the thick wooden slat above me. Slowly, pressure, no pain. Father killed mother, I told myself, and punched it again, this time feeling pain. Father killed mother. Alan flashed in my mind, punching and punch, punch, punch with each punch. The days fell away and mom was alive. They were all lying to keep us here. Punch, punch. I'm in the living room at Alan's house. I'm hitting the sofa cushion and he's holding up for me. Turn your hips, lad, he's saying. Punch, punch. Again, lad. It's good. Again. I hear him clearly and see him more vividly as my knuckles turn red and sore. I'm snapped back to reality as the skin splits. I'm in pain and on my back at Brenda's house on the bottom bunk. Little Jim has walked in, looks down at me and screams. I scream, unloading lefts and right hooks into the wood. For around five seconds, his eyes are on mine before he legged it down the stairs. I'd worn myself out by the time Brenda came up. You're on the top bunk from now on, I was told. I ignored her that night and a few nights after. Yes, I believe this is where begins the start, the true start of my story. Wenzel Daly stabbed his wife Bernadette Daly at the Wizard Caravan site near Alderley, Alderley Edge, Cheshire. He handed himself into the local police hours after he'd stabbed her. He told the police, I quote, I think I've hurt my wife. Later during interviews, he'd state that she was arguing with him, that she wanted to pick up her children and return to Macclesfield, and he didn't want her to because he was scared of Clive, her brother, that Clive would kill him for cheating on Bernie, so he stabbed her. He claims not to remember anything else, as they do. Bernie was found in her pajamas, prone, laying flat on her stomach, with two knife holes in her chest. The knife was a three-inch serrated edge steak knife. It was embedded in the floor beside her, broken, where he had attempted a third stab. There was no medication, substances, or drugs within her system, and it seemed she'd not even put up a fight. Despite being on antidepressants and being alcohol-dependent, her system was clean. Wenzel claimed to remember nothing. Of course. Conveniently. Within the wizard caravan site is a place called Alderley Edge Caves. And the cave areas have some deep drops, deep caves, and perfect conditions for hiding a body. It's Tracy's belief as the eldest son. 
and person who has witnessed exactly what Wenzel is capable of, that he made several attempts on Bernie's life and finally succeeded at that caravan site. However, when it came to disposing of her body, he finally bottled it, and when he went outside and bumped into a dog walker, and he had to confess, I think. Yeah. There's unsubstantiated claims that he made a call that night to his brother, who'd served in the military, to ask him what to do. There's also another claim that Bernie called her friend that night and asked it if she could come back to Macclesfield. It was said that it was all organized and a place was made ready for her and her children, so she wanted to get her children back and leave. However, none of this can be proven as she was found dead in the early hours of the morning on the 3rd of September, 1993, four days before her eldest son, Tracy's birthday. Regardless of the strain this placed on the relationships between siblings at the breakdown of their family and the loss of their mother at the hands of their father, this now meant decisions had to be made by other parties. Tracy and his sister Caroline, as the eldest, were placed into foster placement together. The other two, Jody and Jonathan, were put up for adoption. Tracy's father was sentenced to four years for manslaughter. Four years. Due to diminished responsibility. Fuck that. The stress of being homeless coupled with his wife's condition and his anger-related issues had apparently played a key part in his decision to kill her. The fact that he chose not to remember anything was also a factor. That's fucking ridiculous. Good job, law enforcement. I know it's England. I don't know how everything works over there, but they fucked that up. So you mean to tell me because they were homeless and he was stressed out, he basically got a slap on the wrist for killing her. Yeah. When there's a history of decades of abuse and violence. Get this. He served less than six months in prison. Fucking piece of shit. And was transferred to Walton Prison Hospital after he tried to harm himself by setting a cell on fire and scratching at his wrist. It's here that he met a lady. Wait, what? Set his cell on fire? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this dude's missing a few marbles. It's, It's here that he met a lady we'll call Jay. She was small, petite, with red hair. And had just come out of, of an abusive relationship. Oh, perfect. <laughs> That's what he says, too. She was vulnerable and in a position to be able to help Wenzel. She was everything a psychopath would be looking for. Vulnerable. Inside three months, he was dating her and out on a day release with her. So that's nine months just locked up. Mm-hmm. They'd go to her place to make out. Inside six months, he'd met her children, and it was arranged that when he came out, he'd move in with her. Within that year, Wenzel abused her son. Within two years, he'd abused her daughter. He was never convicted. It's said most people who grow up in care, like Tracy, don't always go on to do very well, and that they may end up in prison, a mental home, or somewhere in between. But Tracy has had a remarkable history, and he's been fighting those statistics for a long time. So I'd say he's beaten those odds. Yeah, and I, I want to tip my hat to him because he's a Absolutely. better man than me because at the end of that story, if that was me, if I was him, I'd probably be in prison too because I would have gone and killed fucking Wenzel. I'd have fucking killed him I myself. I, I think I would have too. Because he's a fucking piece of shit and I would have fucking ended his life. Yep. But Tracy's a better person than me because he didn't. He moved forward with his life, has yeah. a family of his own, is probably a million times a better father than his ever was. He's probably trying to emulate you know, oh, Grandpa Allen. Oh, for Alan, sure. For sure, right? I just... I got to give him kudos and credit, man, because that is that is not easy to do. Yeah, absolutely, Tracy. Because he, ne- there was never justice. 
truly served. No. I so know. me being exactly. me, you know me, I'm firing and brimstone. I'm going to go serve my own fucking justice. Exactly. Patrick justice. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, kudos to Tracy, man. Much respect. I couldn't do it. Tracy, this is, um, you made Pat teary. I congratulations. It's a good bro. story, man. Good job. I mean, it's not a good story. I mean, story. not good job, but I mean, good job. His storytelling <laughs> and, and you know, it, it's touching in some of it. And it's sad. He's, it's unfortunate. You're but, awesome. And but the silver lining, like I said, is to see, how he has come out of it. Absolutely. Who he has become. And the ability to go back and tell this story is, is amazing. And it gives hope for people that do come from abusive families or abusive situations yeah. that you don't have to be that statistic. And you don't he, have to be that number. Like I had said earlier, you know, healing is understanding. And he has a very clear perception. It's not sugar-coated. It's a very clear perception of oh, he doesn't sugarcoat his shit. past, you know. And, I mean, that's so important. Um, so, guys... You can read his complete story in his book, Tracy's Story, to hear the impact of domestic violence on families. And then his second book, Checkmate, which is my next read, demonstrates exactly what is possible when you come from a unique background. So make sure you check out both. And I love that he did that. You know, the first one's obviously the story. The second mm-hmm. the second one is obviously like how to move past that story. Yep. It's definitely something I want to read after hearing and all this. The third one is a self-help book. Uh, for men, too. So, I mean, he's just an awesome guy. How to enter the giveaway. Because, remember, we're giving you guys... Giving a free copy away. A copy, because we really want to get this book out there. It needs to be a lot bigger. Um, on our Instagram, at Evil Pudding Podcast, make sure you are, of course, subscribed to our Instagram. Yeah, follow our Instagram. And to our podcast on a listening platform. And then, two. Find the post we make about the giveaway, and three, like the post, and four, share it to your stories and tag us, please. Share it, tag us at Evil Pudding Podcast. You know, like it, get the word out there. Get the word get out. Get the story out there. And that, then, uh, and yeah, we'll pick a winner in is one week. So the following Sunday, well, this is uploaded on a Sunday, so July 2nd, the following Sunday, we can pick a winner. We'll announce the winner on July 2nd's podcast. Perfect. And then obviously we'll put it on social media on there. Uh, on top of that, check us out on Facebook now. We're on there. We're on Facebook now, guys. We Evil Putting a True Crime Podcast on Facebook. We have our own page on, on, on Facebook now. Yep. Uh, feel free to follow us on there. Comments on the stories, anything like that. Um, I'll add the winner on there, too. And I believe we're getting on Twitter here, too, now, aren't we? Yeah, I'm going to leave that one up to you. Okay. I'm not well, familiar. We are with getting the, on Twitter. I'm not familiar finally, with the tweeter. I'm not either. <laughs> we're finally on Facebook, but... so. <laughs> We're so, all over the place, but after we pick our winner, then uh, we'll announce it, and then make sure y'all DM us with your shipping info, and then we we'll, we'll get it right out to you. Yeah, yeah, we'll announce it next week. We'll announce it on social media, like she said. We'll send. We'll get. We'll get the deets. We'll get the deets from you. The deets, because we want you to have Tracy's then, story. Uh, as soon as we get that announced, we should be able to get it out. You know, depending on the snail mail. The snail mail. How the old postal express works. It could be a couple days, but we'll get it to you. The uh, smoke signals. Pony Express. <laughs> Pony Express. Might come faster than our freaking mail here recently. My God. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, if it's international, it might take it a little longer. I'm a messenger saying. pigeon. <laughs> um, I think that's all I wanted to say. Oh, yeah. Also, let us know if you're interested in us doing a second episode on Checkmate, a part two to his story, because I'm totally down for it. It has a little bit of a, Patrick's going to die. I haven't told you this. A little bit of a paranormal aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Makes me want to read it even more, but okay. Let us know, and I'll get with Tracy, and we can convince him to help us with the part two. So, with that said, 
I hope you guys stay well, stay healthy. There's lots of crud going around right now. And we will see you here same time next week. Bye.